Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hello and welcome to Changing Politics, the podcast that every week gives you a simple, practical way to make the world a better place. I'm Grongy Maguire, the comedian who puts the angel into Anglo-Irish relations. And I'm Marina Cond. I liberate gossip and news from Westminster like a reverse Scarlet Pimpernel. I'm French is what I'm saying. This week, we'll be looking in depth at an unfair deportation and how you can help to stop it. But first, the week's news. So, Marie, are you as excited as I am about the first Brexit debates? I'm mostly very excited about the idea that it might not happen. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm quite excited about it because I don't know if you remember. Do you know those weird EU debates between Nick Clegg and Nigel Farage that absolutely no one watched? Well, great news, they're getting a reboot. But now with Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn. Now, whereas the first debates were pointless because an EU referendum hadn't even been called yet, these are pointless because we've already had it. Uh, it just genuinely makes me want to die. Though I will say <laughs> that the one thing that is quite funny is that obviously so like, Theresa May wants it to happen on the BBC where it's the two of them and then it's a panel of like experts and people mm-hmm. asking them questions. Uh, Rose Jamie Corbyn wants it to be on ITV and just like a proper like so like head-to-head. And it's like maybe what they could do, because clearly they can't see eye to eye on this, so maybe if they could talk about it, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe in a, in a public way, maybe we could broadcast that. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what I don't understand. Why is this happening? Why does every big issue in British top politics have to end with, I know, why don't we have a public debate on it? I think it's the political equivalent of renewing your marriage vows. <laughs> and if that did not work for Heidi Klum and Seal, it's not going to work for anybody. <laughs> so I completely agree, but also I think it's it's actually quite weird politics from number 10 because I think that it works really well for Jeremy Corbyn because effectively I think, you know, like it's the idea is a debate between her deal and what would arguably be a sort of like softer deal, which I think a lot of people, especially people who might not follow politics very closely, might take it as a not quite Remain, but soft Remain-y type thing from Corbyn. So he's kind of getting everything in that he doesn't even have to stand for like a super soft Brexit or no Brexit or a second referendum but it will make it look like he is. And so actually he'll probably get like basically, yeah, all the voters who either, you know, kind of agree with Labour that there should still be a Brexit, that would be a reasonably hard Brexit, but also the ones who don't think that because, you know, like the debate is modelled on that premise. So it's just like, oh, cool. So you, you're you doing this to make Jeremy Corbyn look better and mm-hmm. get, you know, maybe more people backing him? But call me crazy. I just can't help feeling that the fact that Brexit is genuinely nearer than the next Chelsea Flower Show, there could be better uses for people's time. No, let's just have a public debate, not cross-party agreements. Nobody thought, you know what, I know we love shouting at each other, but since the country is literally on the precipice of the army being brought in to stop people rioting for bread, maybe we should have like a little time out? Nah, let's just have a TV debate. I mean, are there better ways for May and Corbyn to spend their time than practising sound bites and zingers? 
But also considering that both Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn are notoriously very bad at sound bites mm-hmm. and zingers. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I'm kind of, I get very annoyed at people who are like, oh, you know, if only politicians could all be like eaten educated, like, you mm-hmm. know, very well versed in the art of debating. Like, I hate that. Mm-hmm. But that being said, no one has ever watched a Corbyn May PMQs and gone, you know what? I want more of that, but very specifically the bit about Brexit. That's all I want. That's all I want. Give me, yeah. So, yeah, no, genuinely, like, I really, really, really hope that like, I go to bed every night praying that it's not going to happen. Brexit or the debates? Oh, the debates. That Brexit we can deal with later, which is the debates. You know, short, short-term praying, short-term praying. Because I think it's going to suck all the oxygen out of all the coverage about Brexit because it all come about what she wore, who was that weird guy in the hat of the audience. And we're going to have a brilliant time on Twitter, you know, that's not... A, deny ourselves that but in the next morning we'll be like oh yeah we still no deal <laughs> peace in Northern Ireland is still in jeopardy and I might have to learn to sterilise water <laughs> but hey at least I got some good memes out of it I still don't even think there's going to be good memes. Now, I remember the good old days, actually, of like Cameron Miliband PMQs, and you could get some decent memeage out of mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. Um, I quite like memeage. <laughs> I just, yeah, use it from now on. But, you know, I feel like yeah, there was decent meme potential there, and I think Twitter was actually quite fun. It's not even fun anymore. Like, I've, I, mean, I say that I've actually not watched PMQs in so long, and literally, I feel like I've not been missing out at all. As a stand up comedian, I always get quite jealous because, like, a halfway funny joke is always like, <laughs> <laughs> Like, try saying that on Friday night in Bracknell, <laughs> Theresa. <laughs> See, my problem is a lot of people say they feel sorry for Theresa May. And I, honestly, over the past few months, I've probably felt a little bit sorry for her too. But I just look at her now and I think, you are so out of your depth. BBC camera crews must be debating whether to save you like those little penguins. I mean, just give us the vote. You're not up to it. You can't find a plan that gets us out without crashing the economy. And you can't even get past your own cabinet, let alone your party, let alone parliament. I know there's all sorts of arguments about a second referendum, but like the government has fucked about for two and a half years since the referendum. And I just, it feels like there's no other choice at this stage. At least if we vote for a hard Brexit, and a lot of people are very sure that's what literally every single Leave voter wanted, at least then we'll just know once and for all. And if we stay, the Tories get to keep blaming higher food standards on unelected EU crats. Britain gets to keep its car factories and Nigel Farage gets to keep his job pretending he's not just shouting about brown people. I feel like, you know, this is something we've talked about a bit before, but... I defy you to come up with a deal that would have united not just the House of Commons, but the Conservative Party and the country at large. Like That deal does not exist. And I think that I agree that, you know, Theresa May clearly is not a good prime minister, I think, by most measures. However, like, what is a deal that would have been acceptable to the Conservative Party, to the House of Commons and the House of Lords, I guess, and to the public? That like, It does not exist. That was the fundamental problem, I think, with the Brexit debate from the very beginning, which everyone should have seen coming and, you know, clearly did not for whatever reason. So, yeah, no, I think, you know, that there's a bit of sympathy in the sense that I think a lot of people are putting that on her when actually, yeah, again, even the best, well, even fucking like Barack Obama, mm-hmm. I think, would have had trouble um, getting any sort of deal pleasing everyone. But it it feels like David Cameron and that sort of mindset was everything is short termism. Everything's just like get us into power. I need to stay into power. I need to stay in power. Whatever I have to say to stay in power. Brexit. Yeah, let's have a vote on Brexit. Do I know what Brexit means? No, doesn't matter. Am I still in power? Yes. What does Brexit mean? Theresa May says Brexit means Brexit. What does that mean? Nobody knows, but I stay in power. And now they have to actually face up to the consequences of their action. They're like politics is hard. 
That's not Theresa May, though. I feel like, you know, she has done, and I think, you know, like, given our topic of the week a bit later, mm. she has definitely done many, many things wrong. Mm. But I think, you know, she can't be blamed for Brexit. Like, she admitted he wasn't one of the, like, wettest kind of, like, you know, Remain campaigners, mm. but still back Remain. But she has to take responsibility. Was She was the one shouting nonsense about the EU, saying that they were allowing people to stay in the country because they had a cat as a pet, and then paying for vans to go around saying, hey, dob yourself in immigrants. So she benefited from creating this toxic environment that led to the Brexit vote in the first place. And now all her foreign chickens are coming home to roost. (laughs) Uh, So moving on, Jared Batten has survived a motion of no confidence, which means he he has to continue as leader of UKIP. Now this follows his appointment of the mortgage fraudster, Stephen Yaxley Lennon, now known for copyright reasons as that bloke who almost collapsed the trial and conviction of a paedophile as an advisor. Now, Nigel Farage has said he'll resign his membership in protest. And do you know what, honestly, you've got to feel sorry for the co-founder and former leader here, as if he hasn't got enough on his plate with the divorce and the Mueller investigation. He's also found out that some people in UKIP are racist. <laughs> God, there'll be no Christmas in his house. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's great how the Conservative right are using an aggressive, charismatic extremist, good at harnessing new forms of popular media to do their dirty work because the last people who attempted that were the Prussians. (laughs) Yes, I have just read a book on German history and look how that worked out. So uh, Gerard Batten became leader following Henry Bolton's resignation over some racist messages sent by his partner about Meghan Markle. Now, do you remember that story? I do. It feels like it was about, like, a decade ago. Yeah. Do you want to feel old? It was February. Oh, It was my fucking God. February. But also, it was, I remember that story, and it felt so fucking weird because I feel like UKIP have not been a proper big thing for ages, but clearly I think journalists found that entire thing really, really funny because mm. that was the story that ran and ran and ran for, like, for days and days, like, you know, the 25-year-old, yeah, like, fascist girlfriend and stuff. And it's like, <laughs> and it was probably one of those where I was like, oh, my God, like, who cares? Like, it is quite funny, but also there's kind of, like, more important stuff going on. Um, but apparently they can still be spotted around Westminster together. Um, friends saw them arguing in a pub uh, recently in the Marquis of Granby, I think. So still there, the lovebirds. The Johnny Rotten and Nancy Spongeon of the far right. <laughs> now, Yaxley Lennon isn't the only racist with a Patreon in the news, though. A cache of documents released by Hope Not Hate revealed that Milo Yiannopoulos, who doesn't tweet as much as he used to for some reason, seems to owe hundreds of thousands of pounds to tour promoters, hotels, lawyers and the jewellery company Cartier. Now, maybe this has been a big misunderstanding. Maybe he thought that a shadowy cabal of jewellers run the world. (laughs) (laughs) That news has made me so happy. There's basically this weird thing, I think, for a bunch of us in the British media where Milo and us go a long way back. So I think I properly became aware of him in around sort of like 2013. Just like this slightly like prickish tech journalist. And I remember, so I think, I can't remember exactly what that was. That was before my time, but there was a slight thing about some competition I think he organised when he was working at the Telegraph and some money went missing and it was a bit like, okay, bit weird, but fine. And then he launched the Colonel, the tech website, 
And it kind of, yeah, and again, he was always quite dickish, but, you know, like, that mm. happens. But I think then, like, things properly started to turn when it was really, like, we realised that basically the colonel had just not been paying its writers, but, you know, like, months and months and months worth of, like, wages just unpaid. And, well, actually, like, as it happens, like, one of those was this woman I know who then, you know, fair enough to her, complained to Milo, being like, mm. you know, would quite like to get paid. And he was like, well, I've got some compromising pictures of you, so if you don't <gasps> stop complaining about your unpaid wages, I will release them on the internet. And so obviously that was the stage where we were like, oh, oh, he's not just a bit of a dick. <laughs> like, he oh is a properly God. awful person. But um, my one direct experience was, I want to say, yeah, 2013, 2014, I think, uh, he organised, it was the weirdest thing. So I think it was meant to be an engagement party, though still unclear who the boyfriend was. And it was uh, the delightful theme of ghetto. And mm. so they served cosmopolitans and fried chicken. Um, yeah, so which, again, it was that, oh, boy, oh, <laughs> boy. And um, and so I crashed it with a friend. And it had lots of paintings of Milo everywhere, like on the walls, like everywhere, just paintings of Milo, um, which, again, kind of weird, given that it was meant to, I think, be an engagement party, like unclear where, you know, the fiancé was. And so my friend and I ended up uh, stealing one of the paintings. Um, <laughs> and he actually emailed my editor and was like, those canvases were worth like £100 each. <laughs> I can't believe one of your employees stole that. <laughs> and I think he just gradually became worse and worse and worse on Twitter. Because I remember 2014, 2015, someone sent him for some reason, like, one of my like online dating profiles. And so he tweeted screen grabs of the entire profile to his like 50k followers, basically being like, you know, look at his like, you know, ugly fat lesbian, which was kind of weird because also he felt like a weird own because it was like, oh no, definitely do not leak the one bit of the internet where I'm trying very hard to appear like the best possible version of myself. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, all my most flattering selfies and like quips I had to come up with to sound like relaxed and yet funny and charming. Um, but it's still, yeah, and it's, I think, you know, it kind of, again, like gradually got worse and worse. And I think, you know, his platform grew and then his kind of like harassment of women and minorities grew. And then, yeah, he's, he became this sort of like massive like thing in the US all right. But I think, yeah, like, a lot of us are still quite baffled to be like, oh, he was kind of our prick <laughs> like, you know and uh, yeah so I, I am delighted that he has no money anymore reading the story it really cheered me up because it felt like every bit there was nobody to feel sorry for <laughs> he's this racist misogynistic transphobic piece of shit but he cheated these people who want to pay racist transphobic <laughs> pieces of shit to put on gigs for people who want to listen to racist transphobic pieces of shit. And it seems like all the money went to Cartier. It seems like Cartier's won. <laughs> Genuinely, I keep looking for a victim in the story, but I can't find any. Just, yeah, no, I know. It's just just finally a proper feel-good news story. <laughs> no, between that and the big cow, I'm done until Christmas. <laughs> For legal reasons, we have to quickly say we're not sure if Milo has a Patreon. So, Marie, I've been checking in on your home country and it seems like this weekend there's been a spot of bother. Now, can you just let me know these riots in Paris? Are they the good kind, protesting injustice and economic inequality, sort of musical, Russell Crowe angrily singing into the middle distance, or the bad kind? So it all started as a, so there was meant to be a fuel tax rise as part of a kind of like green initiative. And so there was like the original protest, like the, you know, original Gilets Jaunes were obviously protesting against that. So mostly people who are middle class and working class living in the countryside and in towns basically going like, we cannot afford this. Like literally we cannot afford a rise in fuel, like in fuel prices. This is not something you can do. 
So it kind of started with that. And then from that, it kind of went on, you know, taxes are too high. And we were promised actually tax cuts when Macron got elected and we've not received them. They're like the super rich have. And so, yeah, so that's kind of that. And then it was a more kind of like general like thing against like the elites. And so mostly Macron, but kind of, yeah, the elites in general. So in Paris, you know, the bourgeois, et cetera, et cetera. And now it's kind of everything. But I think, again, like, what is interesting about it is that it's generally like there are no spokespeople for the Gilets jaunes or anything. And I feel like any time one person kind of starts becoming a spokesperson, then a lot of the people will be like, well, no, fuck them. Like, you know, they didn't represent us. So, like, mm-hmm. it's mostly been organised through Facebook, through Facebook groups, Facebook posts, Facebook events, et cetera. But also, like, each bit will have different stuff. So I think some bits of the Gilets jaunes will have been co-opted by the far left and that turn into kind of like, you know, anti-capitalism protests. Other ones have been infiltrated by the far right and they basically become like quite fascist like protests. Others are completely purely apolitical and just going basically like enough, like, you know, we don't have enough money to live effectively. And so there's this kind of, yeah, complete mishmash of everything. They're just mad at everything. And what I think would worry me if I were Macron is the fact that A, it's showing no sign of stopping. B, I can't remember the exact figure, but it is like this mad thing where actually like the percentage of people who still support the Gilets jaunes is really, really, really high across parties, like across party supporters and across sort of like left and right, even after the riots, which are like arguably I think the biggest we've seen in France in 68. But also, so I think that Edouard Philippe, the Prime Minister, has now said that they're going to push back the fuel rise for like six months, I think. But that's not going to change anything because I think it's too late for that now. Like the protests are just about so much more than that. Mm. I have no idea what's going to happen next, but it it is generally, I think, probably the biggest story since Macron became president. Um, Is this a warning to centrist dads everywhere? (laughs) (laughs) Should they be worried? (laughs) And they've brought gilets into it. That's their fashion wardrobe of choice. (laughs) I don't know. I, I feel like, you know, centrist, and that's been, I think, a problem in, like, UK political discourse for a while now, for at least, you know, the past of, like, two years or so, is that centrist doesn't really mean anything. And I think when people talk about centrist, they all talk about, like, you know, the idea of centrism they have in their head. Mm-hmm. He's effectively just running, you know, your bog-standard right-of-centre government. Like, he's basically a Cameroon. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, effectively, if you look at the policies, he is basically a Cameroon, but without the kind of, like, party structure. Marie, you're almost suggesting that I need to look past that beautiful, beautiful face and actually read up on his policies, which is inference I do not appreciate. I mean, still would, obviously, (laughs) despite everything. Just putting it out there if you're listening, Emmanuel. (laughs) As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. 
From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, Murray, you came to the UK when you were, what, 17? Yep. How British do you feel? Oh, uh, not British at all. I'm not British. I'm a Londoner, but I'm not British. Imagine you came here when you were a small child, right? Your entire secondary education, university education, your work, your friends, your love life, it's all been here. And imagine the country that you came from used to be part of the British Empire. How British would you feel then? Well, that's obviously a leading question. You're damn right it is. This week, I want to talk about Hilary Inyomo Marcus. He came to the UK when he was 10, 23 years ago, but he is currently in a detention centre near Heathrow awaiting deportation. We spoke to him earlier. Hi, my name is Hilary Nyama Marcus. I am 33 years old, born in Nigeria, but as British as they come. I'm currently at Her Majesty's Pleasure at Hammondsworth Immigration Removal Centre by Heathrow. And that's as a result of me uh, having served a custodial sentence back in 2013 for cheating the public revenue, which I was given a custodial sentence of two years, three months. I served 15 months of that. And as a result, according to immigration rules, for people who are not uh, fully British citizens, who have not naturalized or were born in the United Kingdom, thereby liable for deportation. So a custodial sentence of four years and above uh, warrants an automatic deportation order. And a custodial sentence of four years and below, but above 12 months, you become liable for deportation. And having gone through various legal challenges of the Home Office's, um, you know, determination to, to, to deport me, you know, it's now got to the level whereby, you know, they're now actively pursuing uh, my deportation back to Nigeria, a country I haven't lived in for well over 20 years. So what connections do you have to Nigeria and what are your connections to Britain? I haven't left Nigeria since the age of 10. I've only been back once uh, on a visit. And since then, you know, any blood relatives that I, that I had in Nigeria, i.e. My, my grandparents, uh, have passed on since. And everybody else is here. So my, my parents, my siblings, who are all British citizens, cousins, nieces, nephews, and indeed my own family. You know, I'm a married man, have been married for over five years now, and I have two lovely children, aged three and one. And, you know, my, my ties to the United Kingdom has uh, never been disputed by, by the Home Office. You know, I am a product of the British education system. I'm fully integrated into British culture and society. Apart from, you know, the fact that I was born in Nigeria through, you know, the lottery of being born there, I have no further ties to Nigeria. What happens to your family if you have to leave the country? So my wife works as a civil servant 
to work for local authority working within the, the housing allocation department. And that in itself is a service to a much needed service to this country. Now, should deportation be pursued and, and eventually executed by the Home Office, that ultimately means that my wife would have to give up work in order to then become, take up the role which I've played all the while at the primary care for my children. If a deportation indeed does happen, how could we justify her leaving her employment, claiming benefits, job seekers allowance, universal credit, housing benefits, and then my children now becoming, you know, losing a father, playing an active role in their lives. Now, that whole idea doesn't make sense to me because ultimately the taxpayers should be up in arms about that because you've got a fully functioning father in myself who's able to provide the care and stability that my children or wife need. But somehow the Home Office seems to find it justifiable to separate us and put and place that additional burden on the resources that are already quite limited. So what have you been doing since you left prison? Going into prison, I was for Prison Radio Association on their radio station called National Prison Radio, which is a unique radio station that's broadcasted across England and Wales with a potential listenership of up to about 80,000 listeners and gave me an opportunity to learn how to make radio programs, radio shows. Upon my release, I you know even whilst in prison, I worked for another organization called Keep Out, which is a crime diversion scheme that brings young people who are at risk within the community into prison and serving prisoners with duty of their own personal experience to deliver a series of workshops to hopefully help these young people understand that the choices and the lifestyles that they were living could only lead them in one way, which is ultimately prison or the grave. Upon my release and having now a real knack for broadcasting and media, National Prison Radio were able to give me further opportunities to volunteer for various media companies, primarily the BBC. And that's where the BBC gave me an opportunity to do various shows, you know, that were broadcasted nationally, such as the Archive on 4, where I did a radio documentary called How to Go Straight, which was broadcasted in 2017. Subsequently, I've gone to, you know, going to prisons, you know, such as uh, younger, other various younger offender institutions, adult prisons, to go in and talk to young people or, you know, the people that are serving their time using my own personal experience and hopefully encouraging them and giving them a message of hope that, you know, regardless of where you are right now, if you're able to use your time wisely, you can come out with skills that can generally give you a platform for you to go on and do better things within the community, become much more productive members of communities. Um, I have become somewhat of a poster boy for the Ministry of Justice for the prison reform things that I've done. I've worked with, you know, I've volunteered for various charities such as the National Literacy Trust, the St. Giles Trust. All these organizations have in some way, shape or form doing various things within, you know, criminal justice and rehabilitation in, 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 as a whole. I think we can agree that Hillary fits the definition of good character. Well, what does that mean? Because if bad character can get you deported, then we probably need to cut some of the jokes from the first half of the show. Character is one of the reasons the Home Office used to decide if a non-British-born resident can stay in the country. We spoke to the MP for Tottenham, David Lammy, who's been campaigning on unfair deportation for a while now. You may remember the Windrush scandal, which caused the Home Secretary to lose her job. And he explains more about good character. The sorts of things that the Home Office are refusing people's right to citizenship 
on on the basis of bad character are, of course, criminal convictions. They can be incredibly minor. Suspected criminal convictions when they can't even prove it. Um, poor financial acumen, things like bankruptcy. Notoriety, which often is just about being eccentric, a bit different. And then suspected deception or dishonesty. It's a very wide list. Sometimes people commit crimes of dishonesty because they're driven there by poverty. And actually, that a lot of the Windrush fall into that character. I've met people that I've seen around Tottenham who just appear as tramps. And I actually then find out that there's mental health issues going on. And then, surprise, surprise, they're Windrush. They've been living in a shed. They had a small conviction for shoplifting or something. Where are the human rights? Where is the democracy? Where is the fundamental idea that if you commit a crime, yes, you're sentenced, you serve your time, that, but once that time is served, you get on with your life as a fellow citizen contributing to society. The truth of why it's being used is really so that the government can reduce net migration. In 2010, Theresa May promised to reduce net migration to 100,000, and meeting net migration targets form basically the basis of the hostile environment. And since 2010, 44,500 foreign offenders have been deported. And we know amongst what are described in quotation marks as foreign offenders are actually people who've been here since they were two, three or four from countries like Ghana, countries like Jamaica, who are wholly British. 44,000 people. That's the equivalent of deporting the entire crowd from a Chelsea match. OK, now, I'm not maybe quite convincing you with that one. So let's say it's like deporting the entire population of Dover. And actually, the number of people being deported is probably much higher than that. We spoke to Luke Butterley from Right to Remain, a human rights organisation that campaigns for migration justice. In 2016 alone, there was 40,000 people who were removed. Um, that could have been forced deportations or it could have been what they call voluntary departure in that year alone. So, you know, that, that, that figure would be similar to the total number of people who um, were deported following criminal convictions since 2010. So it's much, much bigger than just people who have uh, served time. And even for the people who are classified as voluntarily being removed from the country, we have to question what voluntary means in this context. The stated rationale of Theresa May's hostile environment is to make the country so unbearable that people who have insecure immigration status just leave themselves. So we could question this rationale at all. Is this the kind of society we want, this very hostile society, these measures which create a lot of uh, racial profiling and discrimination? But even more so, we know from the Home Office own figures that it doesn't work. The number of people who leave voluntarily has been falling. And what happens more often is that people are pushed into the arms. If they can't rent legally, they'll be pushed into the arms of dodgy landlords. If they can't work legally, they'll work, um, you know, in um, situations which are more likely to be exploitative. I hate to sound like mum's net, but surely we should be thinking of the children here. Hillary came to the UK when he was 10. But it's not just about him. The system keeps kids from getting their rights to British citizenship. 
Here's Luke again. So regarding um, people who came here as children, there is a lot of people who have come here as children and live here without secure immigration status. And really to be absolutely secure in the UK, you need to have British citizenship. Anything else can be taken away from you. And why why do people, why do children end up in this situation? Often it's they have uh, a lack of support or information. The fees to register are very high. They're unaffordable for many families and the, the legal situation is complex and constantly changing. This chimes with Hillary's experience, by the way. One of the reasons why I didn't get round to ever naturalising to become a full British citizen are for two reasons. One, because when I was entitled to British citizenship after I had been granted indefinite leave to remain a permanent residency for a certain period of time, I therefore, I therefore became eligible for British citizenship. At the time, unfortunately, my mum and I didn't always have the best of relationships. It was quite a a rocky one, as it were, and I, I, I never, you know, and having come here at such a tender age of ten, you know, I didn't have the questions that would have been asked of me on an application form to submit to the Home Office in order to get naturalised uh, or become naturalised. So I had followed all the due process that was required of me by way of doing a life in the UK test, which I passed with flying colours. Got myself an application form and was only just barely able to complete the first page, which was my name, date of birth, where I was born and the address I lived at, my occupation. But any subsequent questions beyond that, you know, it became incredibly difficult for me to get access to simply because, you know, I was too young and I would have required the help of my of my mum and my all my stepdad to help me complete the application form itself. The other very, very important aspect of the reason why I didn't naturalise was also because of the fees. At the time when I became eligible to naturalise, I was in transition of employment at the time. And, you know, having, you know, a young family, it would have been incredibly difficult for me to, you know, you know, come up with the fees that would have been required. As someone who doesn't have British citizenship and is currently earning, let's call it podcast money, how much money are we talking about to become an official Brit? Loads. As David Lamy explains... Most people listening to this podcast who are British only really encounter the Home Office through the passport office when they apply for a passport. And for those citizens applying for a passport, they consider actually almost 100 quid expensive. And they get very upset (laughs) if their passport takes longer than a month to come back to them. There's another group of people who are given this status of indefinite leave to remain who are subject to fees running into the thousands because if you're mum and dad with this status and then you've got two or three kids that's a price tag five thousand quid thousands of pounds to renew that status in this country the home office is making profits of about 800 percent on those applications How can it be acceptable in a civilised democracy for a percentage of profit to be quite as obscene as 800%? Totally, totally unacceptable. And I might say it's even more unacceptable when you remember that this is the same Home Office who paid out £4 million in compensation to people wrongly detained at detention centres 
places like Yarlswood last year. The whole system is insane. But it's not the insanity that concerns me actually most. It's the cruelty. It's driving very poor families into poverty and incredible stress and pressure, finding thousands of pounds to pay for this renewal process. What can we actually do, though? I can't change immigration law. I've tried. Well, there's several levels, as usual. So firstly, if you want to get in touch with your MP, now is a brilliant time to do so. That's not my opinion, it's the opinion of an MP. The big news in Parliament is that any time now we're going to get the immigration bill. We don't know what's in it, but we think some very worrying things are going to be in it, and we certainly don't think the government are going to row back very far from a hostile environment. Brexit is sucking a lot of energy out of the air, but this bill is really important, and I would really encourage listeners to take an interest, to lobby their members of parliament, to look at websites like the Refugee Council and the Immigration Advisory Service and others and the things that they put out, to be engaged and to recognise that when you stand up for these people like Windrush, like Hillary, like families subjected to these fees, you're often standing up for people who find it very hard to stand up for themselves and on their own. They're hugely vulnerable and hugely frightened that they can be deported at any, any moment's notice. Don't underestimate the fear that exists in these communities. And if you have your right to be here, you've got your British passport, you're a British national, you're doing a great service by advocating on their behalf. The government actually got a guy called Stephen Shaw, who used to be the prison's ombudsman and director of the Prison Reform Trust, to carry out a review of the welfare in detention of vulnerable people, which was published last July. He specifically calls for the Home Office to, and I quote, no longer routinely remove those who are born in the UK or have been brought up here from an early age. So if you're going to get in touch with your MP, maybe mention that a guy who spent his whole career working in prisons reckons people like Hillary should stay. But Luke from Right to Remain thinks there's an even simpler thing you can do. I guess you know, as, as a first step would be to speak with your family, speak with your colleagues about the issue, because as a, lo- a lot of these laws are going back under the Conservative government, the Coalition government, the Labour government, it's not just a party political issue. It's quite embedded in how we see immigration. And a lot of people ha- are quite on board with the notion that if someone has committed a crime, whatever their links are to the country, that they should be deported to a country that they don't know. So we need, you know, a big kind of national shift in this. So if you can start with your family and friends, that'd be be a start. Okay, so that's a bit wishy-washy, but think of it like posting a Snopes article under your conspiracy theorist uncle's Facebook posts. It adds up. And yes, it's easy for us to immigrants to say to you trendy podcast listeners that immigration is a good thing but other people need to hear it too you know what happened last time nobody stood up for the idea that immigration is a positive thing for the country brexit that's what and finally this is what hillary wants you to do so earlier on this week at hammondsworth you know immigration removal center on the 27th charter plane was uh you know my name was put on a charter flight to be deported, you know, a charter flight that was going to Nigeria and Ghana. And because of my blood pressure rising to, you know, a very worrying level, 
which could have caused either a stroke or a heart attack. At the very last minute, I was pulled off that chartered flight. And since I've been placed uh, on, in, in the care of nurses and doctors currently at Hammondsworth Removal Center. Now, since then, you know, where my case currently stands is that, you know, I am still trying to gather as much evidence as possible, new evidence, new grounds, which we've put before the Home Office and the Secretary of State before. However, according to their own immigration rules, you know, without expert reports to substantiate our grounds, it seems, you know, it's, it's so far falling on deaf ears. So what we've asked the Home Office for is just a bit more time for us to accumulate and collate those reports in order to be able to make a further submission. What would help at this stage, you know, to, to all the listeners is to look at the facts of my case first and foremost. I am far from a monster which the Home Office seems to continually paint me to be, you know, and there are people who put their reputations online, outstanding members of society, you know, various people from all walks of life who have already stood up and, and read the facts of my case and concluded that, you know, uh, that there is no sense in what is being pursued by the Home Office. So we, we, we have a petition that's going around. The more signatures we have on that, the better, so that people can unequivocally demand that, you know, that the, the Home Office revisit my case and, and look at, they keep suggesting that there's public interest, but the public's interest you know, like I said, there is no scientific or qualitative data to suggest that there is public interest in deporting me. There's also a GoFundMe as well online, which, you know, I have spent, you know, I continue to, you know, um, pay for that one mistake ever that I've ever made through the legal fees I've paid, you know, in, in, in the northern region of about £16,000 since 2014. All my life savings is, is you know, completely gone into legal costs. And so I had to set up a GoFundMe and people have been so generous already and given more than I could ever have imagined. So I'm also grateful to that, for, to them for that. And I'd like to use this platform and opportunity to thank everybody who has signed the petition thus far and given money to the GoFundMe fundraiser that we're pushing out. But most importantly as well, if people can reach out to Sajid Javid or Caroline Knox or indeed the Prime Minister. We've always been proud of being able to give people as, as many chances as they require in order to get things right, to get themselves right. All I'm asking is for just one more, and if that message can be communicated to the powers that be, especially Mr. Sajid Javid or Caroline Knox, it would make a massive difference for the sake of my children and my wife so that their human rights are also not being completely dis- disregarded or discarded. Hilary and Yuma Marcus is still in the country for now, and if you want to sign the petition to make the government let him stay, and I'd like to re-emphasise he is absolutely British, we'll tweet the link out for you, but do share the petition and donate to his GoFundMe if you can. You can also look at Right to Remain's information packs if you head to our website, changingpolitics.org, our Twitter at changingpolypod, or our Facebook at changingpol. We'll see you there, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>